You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a nice person. (laughs) Want to make that clear? Right up front. He was not a chilly person. He was not an austere person. He was not condescending. He was not patronizing. He showed his compassion in many little ways. One of the ways in which he showed his compassion to us as fallen mortals is the homey, regular, everyday, familiar nature of the illustrations he used, the analogies he used to make his life-changing spiritual points. Eggs, sheep, Children, fish, stones, mustard seeds, things that people were familiar with in their everyday lives. His blessed Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth that comes now among us and convicts us of truth. The Holy Spirit, also a nice person. Holy Spirit, not chilly, not austere, not condescending, not patronizing. He shows his compassion to us in just the same way. He surrounds us with illustrations homey, everyday things which we can understand and we can relate to in understanding his life-changing work in our heart. Our our life is full of that. Technology, delete, default, computer, mouse, memory. Just a sermon kind of just springs right to mind. You think about delete and default. All kind of illustrations. Music, for instance, is just such an illustration. There are many parallels, many parallels between living in a Christian community, or, or, or more broadly, living in a Christian way, and playing in a band. Many parallels. I should know, because uh, I am doing the one, living in a Christian community, trying to live in a Christian way, prayerfully, and I have done the other. I have played in a band. For many years, as a matter of fact, I played the trombone. I have that in common with our esteemed president, Dr. Paul Rader. Likewise, the parallels are entirely generic, I might just say, but we did both play the trombone. <laughs> we have that in common. Now, I I have to say that I thought my trombone playing days were over. I laid the instrument aside. It just occurred to me this morning, I probably shouldn't uh, take time to say so, but did it ever occur to you how much a music case looks like a coffin? (laughs) You know, they're they're black, and you open up the lid, and they got that purple plush, you know? (laughs) I laid my trombone in its case. It looked like it passed away. Its little slide is folded up, you know. It's at rest. It's at peace. Don't they do a good job when those bus look like he's asleep? <laughs> but just last week, I thought but the hope was stirred in my breast. Perhaps the trombone is not dead. Perhaps just a deep coma. I may, I may be able to revive it. And what stimulated this hope was this flyer. which you may find around on, hey, fellow rockers. (laughs) We're looking for someone who can bust out some quality T-bone action. (laughs) Now, as I say this, cold fingers of fear are closing around the heart of Dr. Ron Holtz. He is saying to himself, it's only a short step between him thinking he can play an FC groove to him thinking he can play in the Salvation Army Band. Well, have no fear. My, uh, my trombone days are over. But I do have one lasting recollection of the trombone, and that is 
that it provides seven opportunities to be right and an infinite number of opportunities to be wrong. But back to the parallels. And these are just a few of the many that can come to mind. The first of the parallels is that living a Christian life and playing in a band requires practice, which I will define as having two components. The first component is that you must believe that your objective is worthy of your efforts. That's component one. Component two is that you have to be willing to apply yourself so that you can master your material so that it's secure. You know it securely, you have it securely for your purposes. Two components. Now in the case of music, you're gonna say, this is ob too obvious to require defense. Just kind of touch on that point and go on. Who can deny that that is true in the case of music? But hold on, hold on. You hear Dr. Donald Zent play the piano. You hear Martha Blackburn play the violin. You hear Norman Reinhardt sing, and you say to yourself, I'd give anything if I could do that. Lies. You wouldn't give a half hour a day to do it. You certainly wouldn't give the two, four, six, eight hours a day it has required of them to learn to play so well. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. It is equally obvious that if being a Christian is important to you, if the goal seems to you worthwhile, then you have to apply yourself to your material until you know it securely. It's no good, and you're sailing along in music, you come across a C sharp. No good then, too late, to discover that you do not know what position on the trombone C-sharp is. And it's the same thing with the Bible. You're sailing along in life and you're suddenly hit with a doubt or with depression or with frustration or some occasion for anger, some temptation. Too late then to realize that you don't have any earthly clue of what consolation the Bible offers for that problem. Too late to look it up in the concordance. You've got to know your material. Another parallel is timing. In Christian life and in music, timing are very important. My personal favorite in the line of timing was Largo. Doesn't Largo sound like nice Largo? <laughs> it means slow and stately. I love slow and stately. My personal favorite along the same line when it comes to notes was the quarter note. The quarter note has two advantages over its partner notes. One is that the quarter note is not long enough that you get bored. And it's not fast enough that you actually have to master the instrument to be able to play it. <laughs> My kind of note. Now, before I go on here, I'm, not, I'm going to anticipate what Dr. Holtz is thinking, but it's too kind to say. Right? Recalling our many years together in music, him leading and me more or less following, <laughs> most of the music that came before me in the Salvation Army was not, alas, Largo, and most of the notes I had to play were not, alas, quarter notes. Timing is critical, and we do not set the tempo. Now let me be more specific about timing. It's possible that you, as young people, would forget the fact that in the timing of your Christian experience, it's possible to go too fast. You must not go too fast. You must not get ahead of the body of Christ. This is a natural impulse on the part of young people. Natural or not, it must be overcome. Do not go too fast. Remember the sainted, the Wesley Memorial Bible, uh, Wesley Memorial uh, Handbell Choir. Wesley Memorial, the sainted name of Wesley. Wesley stressed the importance of, of experience and tradition. So you must pray, you must reflect, you must walk in the spirit, not run. Uh, the Psalms tell us, 119th Psalm, that the word is a light under our path, like a headlight in a vehicle. You can't get ahead of the light. You can't run off into the darkness. You've got to move at the pace at which the Holy Spirit is takes you. If you cannot get ahead of the Holy Spirit, that's wrong. Do not be impulsive. Do not be too fast. On the other hand, do not be too slow, which is a tendency not of youth but of people my age. 
who tend to be know-it-alls anyway, and with no good reason. <laughs> this morning, I read in the newspaper, just this morning, I read it, the whole newspaper was depressing, but particularly depressing was one of the front page stories, I don't know if anybody saw that, that people start losing mental powers at the age of 20. Alas! <laughs> It's a wonder somebody my age can take nourishment without assistance. <laughs> so don't be too slow. Do not fall behind. Do not always rely on what is familiar, what is comfortable, what is approved. Do not always stop at the line where your parents say, or your denomination says, or even people at Asbury College say, this far. You can go in Christ, this far you can go in the Holy Spirit, but you cannot take one step farther than that or we will withhold our approval. Remember that we're all in this together. In the great band of life, the great Christian band of life, we're all playing together. We all have to end up at the end of the concert and at the end of life in the same spot. We play together in time, we play together on time. And the third parallel is that the material upon which the experience of music and the material on which the experience of being a Christian, both those experiences um, are based, is steady, it is reliable, it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is true. In music, the tempo, the key signature, the accidentals, they mean exactly what they say. It's no good when you're playing in a band for you to come up on a piece of music that's written in on A flat. You can't just say, as I was often tempted to do, you can't just say, hold on, I learned to play in the key of C. I was willing to vary a little bit the key of B flat. I memorized all the positions in the key of C and I threw in the key of B flat. That is absolutely it. Now look at all of these flats. I don't know what I'm not going to play. I'll fix them. Or I will play, but I'll just, when I get to those notes that are not the ones I'm used to, I'll just play them wrongly or I'll leave them out. Who is Franz Joseph Haydn? wrote this tune. Who is Franz Joseph Haydn to tell me how to play? Who is, who is Mozart? Who is Sousa? Who is Fillmore? Who is Holzinger? Who is Macbeth? Who is Kurnow? To tell me, the great me, who have mastered the key of C, how to play. <laughs> Where do those guys get off? Oh, they're flats and they're sharps. Sixteenth notes. And it's the same in Christianity. The Bible is living truth. In the book of Acts, the second chapter there, 36th verse, Peter is preaching, the apostles are preaching, and the people who hear this, they are cut to the heart, this, this irresistible, overwhelming truth of the Bible. And they ask them, what, should, what will we do? What should we do? What should our response be? The apostles say, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and accept the Holy Spirit, for this is promised to you and to those that are far off. We read in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired of God, and that it is profitable for, uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. If in music and if in life you come across a passage that is difficult for you, that is a challenge for you, that is hard for you, that's impossible for you the first blush, the first time through, the first exposure, you don't know what to do. That is not an invitation to pass, pass over it and forget it. That is a warning, that is a rebuke that you must get it right, however much effort it takes. The text must be obeyed. If you say you're a good musician, and you leave out the hard parts, or the parts you don't like, then you're, you're not even a good liar, because you haven't even deceived yourself. But if you say you're a good Christian, and you leave out the passages in the Bible that are difficult, or, or a challenge, or in some way strike you as unpleasant, uh, unwelcome, 
in your present state of spirituality. If you say you're a good Christian and react to those passages by leaving them out or getting them wrong, then it's much more serious because you might be a good enough liar to deceive yourself. And if you are deceived on this point, it can have fatal consequences spiritually. The text is inerrant and infallible. You cannot leave it out and you cannot play it wrong. The text must be obeyed. I, I, I'm coming near the end of my discourse. Thank you for being so polite, I'm giving the impression of being interested, very encouraging. My last point was that the text must be obeyed, and I want to close with an illustration of that. Some years ago, I was doing research uh, for something I was doing at the time, and I came across a photograph that was made in 1904, glass plate negative about this big, and it was of a meeting held in New York City in the basement of, actually, the Salvation Army headquarters on 114th Street. And it showed, uh, it, it portrayed uh, Evangeline Booth as a Salvation Army leader who's coming to take in charge of the Salvation Army of the United States and all the officers in that New York area, which used to be the center of the Salvation Army's administration in the United States. They were all gathered around having a banquet in the basement of this, uh, of this uh, Salvation Army headquarters building. And this photograph, which is a glass plate negative, was probably a 10-second exposure. It might have been longer, but it was at least a 10-second exposure. So the people had to stand perfectly still. And then there was phosphorus powder in a little tray, and it would trigger it with a little um, spark match, and it would flare up, and the um, light that that cast on the, on the scene would be recorded on the, on the glass plate negative in the camera. Photographs like that, if there's no movement, photographs like that can be very, very sharp, very, very clear. And they're interesting to look at, because every detail is, is, is clearly preserved. You can learn a lot about the little details of life from these old photographs that modern photography usually does not have that kind of resolution, or doesn't appear to me at least to be in these. And also the pictures are large. The negatives were as large as the top of this, um, as this, of this podium. And so I, was, uh, I looked at this very closely. You could see the glasses, the water was you know, half full in the glasses, and there was Worcestershire sauce and ketchup bottles, and you could see half-eaten rolls in the plates, and the light shine. Some of them had uh, glasses, you know, pince-nez that pinched on their nose, and little chains coming down. You could see those, the light would reflect in those, and the ladies had their hairs up, hair up in buns, and uh, you could just see the whole thing. It was really, you see the programs and, on the plates, and they'd, some of them sketched on them and crumbled them up on the floor, so every little detail. And in the back, on the back wall of this hall, there was a religious motto had been painted, just painted right on the plaster, old-fashioned copper plate painting, printing that Victorian people did, and I, I spotted it, and it, I read it. I read what it said. Now, you might wonder why I would be interested in the religious motto on the wall of a building, which, in fact, the building itself was torn down 75 years ago, and people don't use those mottos anymore. So why, why did that strike me? In the particular moment that I read that, I, I imagined by chance. I was led to look at this picture, and I wasn't even thinking about spiritual things, but I was in a point in my life spiritually where I had forgotten on a particular point that was pressing in my heart, I had forgotten how important it is that we accept that God's word is inerrant, infallible. It means what it says. Its promises are true. Seeing that motto on the back wall refreshed that for me in such a wonderful way that I've never forgotten. It was really, in its way, a life-changing experience for me, and I want to pass it on to you. This is what that motto said on the back wall of that hall. It said, the test of love is not feeling. The test of love is obedience.